Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts. This is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello and welcome once again to Dark Unicorn in Conversation. My guest today is an eminent journalist and broadcaster of four decades standing. Starting out as a trainee with ITN, he became their Washington correspondent in the mid-80s and also their diplomatic editor in the early 90s. However, he is best known perhaps as an institution within an institution at the BBC where he started out as their Paris correspondent and then became the face of the one o'clock news from 93 to 99, before spending a decade as one of the core hosting team of the flagship current affairs programme today on Radio 4. He now looks after their religion and ethics show, Sunday, and is a regular voice presenting any questions when filling in for Jonathan Dimbleby. He's also the author of a variety of books on topics as diverse as the Catholic Church, the history of St. Paul, uh, his recent co-authored book, Blind Man's Brexit, It's a PC World, and also his Diary of a London Dog Walker, which was turned into book form following a very successful run in the Daily Telegraph, where he talks about the vagaries of his life with his Springer Spaniel, Kudu, near their home in South London. He is Edward Stoughton, and like so many of us who have had to spend their lives on Zoom during lockdown, he had a slight issue with the visuals from his side. So therefore, this is going to be a largely audio affair. That won't affect you if you listen to this as a podcast, of course, but for those of you on YouTube, feel free to uh, go about your business while you listen to the phenomenal life story of a man who is still very much at the top of his field. Edward, was there, a, was there an event that you can recall which made you think, I want to spend my life reporting or on or writing about things like this? No, I think I fell into journalism in that slightly lazy way that people after arts degrees at Oxbridge often do. I've written a lot at school and enjoyed it. And at university, I ran a rather frivolous um, magazine, which it's terribly embarrassing to 
find a copy of in the bottom drawer now, um, with, uh, with Nick Coleridge, among others, who of course became a great magazine, um, magazine mogul. Um, and I did a lot of speaking at the Cambridge Union, so I was sort of interested in public events, if you like, at that stage. Uh, and, and Cambridge was very much in those days the sort of place that encouraged you um, to feel part of the national life in a funny sort of way, which is a very arrogant thing to do when you were 20 years old, but you sort of did. Um, and the great thing about the Union, of course, is all sorts of grandees would come down from London. Um, so I you know, had dinner with Michael Heseltine, Princess Anne, all sorts of wonderful folk. Um, so I suppose I looked a bit in that direction. Um, I remember going to the careers officer in Cambridge and talking to him about it. He said, you realise that you are going to have to enjoy being woken up in the middle of the night and instructed to go somewhere unpleasant and dangerous at a moment's notice, which I confess I found a deeply unappealing idea because I rather was rather addicted to parties in, the, in those days. It seemed like a rotten, a rotten idea. But actually, um, once I started particularly reporting, I mean, I, I've done various different media. Um, but the consistent thing that I found I really love and I sort of treasure as a, as a life experience is reporting. It, 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 both because it, it means sort of minding about people and it, it teaches you compassion, it teaches you curiosity. Uh, and particularly for Teddy in those days, you, you, you sort of got to be there at moments of history, which is a hell of a treat, really, especially when you're sort of a young man. Mm -hmm. Your childhood was, in many ways, at least educationally, the, the sort of quintessential childhood of a member of an old English Catholic family, Ampleforth, prior to Cambridge. Did uh, being educated by Benedictines leave an impression that perhaps a more secular education might not have? Yes, it certainly did. And in a funny sort of way. I mean, in some ways, of course, it's completely... Um, the wrong thing to do if you want a journalist be a journalist because it's all about tradition and the kind of genius of the place very much was that it looked back to the rulers of Benedict in the sixth century and the last days of the Roman Empire, um, which is not necessarily great preparation for going into a, a professional trade which involves fashion above all things and where the latest events are, are, are what are what 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 drive you and, and, and immediate re responses and reactions are what drive you. But I think that openness that the Benedictines have, uh, the intellectual kind of curiosity they encourage. I mean, it, you know, it was a Catholic school and you were taught in a Catholic way, but it, but it was a very liberal intellectual climate. Um, and actually in the end, although I, it took me many decades, I think, to appreciate this, the sense of history that comes with that kind of uh, education and what I've you know one of the great lessons of my journalistic life is that history is absolutely crucial for understanding current events you don't you, don't, you come to that very late I think you you, 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 you don't see the roots of decisions or, or that you're reporting on or of events you're reporting on um, until you've been do doing it for quite a long time but I think it's there and I do th I do think that having been educated by uh, a an institution with a very strong sense of its historical roots and the continuities that those draw on was actually, well, it was a very valuable thing to do, actually. It's a, it's a real privilege. Um, although uh, you're now very much a, a, a 
institution inside an institution in the form of a bit of the BBC. You trained at ITN, um, stayed with them for some time, helped to found the Channel 4 news team. I mean, there's an extent to which journalism is journalism, but did you find yourself drawn to the more commercial outlet over public service broadcasting at the start, or was it simply a question of luck and timing that you ended up at, uh, at ITN? It was a question of who'd give me a job. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the BBC. You know, you've got to, you've got to be. No, I went, I went, I tried to be a BBC trainee, um, and it was extremely competitive. I got through the last round, um, but I fell at the final hurdle. And the great thing about ITN in those days was that it was extremely lackadaisical about its sort of administrative habits. And they didn't do the university round, re recruiting round until long after all the decent people had been snapped up by others. Um, so there were much fewer of us when they came to interview for an ITN traineeship. And I discovered later, and this is a deeply shocking thing to have to admit today, well, it wasn't my fault, but to, to, to reflect on today, that the managing editor's secretary became a bit of a friend. And she told me that she had been instructed to go through the pile of applications and remove any that hadn't come from people who'd been to Oxford or Cambridge. So the combination of lateness and academic snobbery meant there were about five of us who had a realistic chance of getting, uh, getting the job. And in the end, they, they took three of us. And we've all three, in a funny sort of way, gone through our careers sort of bumping into each other at odd times. Um, one of the three was uh, Mark Damson, who later became my boss in television news and then uh, on Radio 4. And the other was Michael Crick, um, great, tremendous investigative journalist. And in fact, I did recently did an Any Questions, uh, and Michael was on the panel. And I was introducing the guests, and you have a little you know, curriculum vitae in front of you. And I, I looked at Michael's and I realized that he was absolutely exactly the same as mine. For the first few days, he, like me, joined ITN as a trainee, um, became its first, one of its first Washington correspondents when Channel 4 News started. Uh, and then we, we, you know, we went our separate ways, but continued to see each other over the years. So it was a very, very sort of, a very good group to belong to. Actually, and and, and 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 in lots of ways, ITN was an advantage over the BBC. You didn't get anything like the sort of really good, rigorous training that BBC News used to give people in those days. Mm. But it was much more free flow and buccaneering, and you got the chance to do stuff very early. Um, you also got sent on really quite absurd um, assignments because it, it had a sort of strong tabloid, tabloid element to it in those days, ITN. So I remember being coming in one morning and, and the news editor shouting at me, are oh, you trainee, go to Brixton and find an escaped prisoner. Um, because one of the tabloids had run a piece about prisoners climbing over the wall and popping out for a pint in the evenings. And I literally did spend the day wearing my uh, public school boy pinstripe suit, walking up to burly men in the pubs of Brixton and offering to buy them pints and asking whether they by any chance had escaped from, from the local Nick. Um, so that sort of thing you, you wouldn't have got at the BBC. And, and it's a very, very good kind of, I'm mean, glad I don't have to do that sort of thing now, but it's a very good, you know, training. It knocks a few, I was going to say, it knocks a few rough edges. It knocks a few smooth edges off you and perhaps mm. roughens you up a bit. Um, so, you know, and, and the other thing, of course, is that ITN, I mean, in those days, there were only um, three television channels and only one of them was commercial. So ITV was absolutely awash with DOSH and ITN seemed to be able to spend whatever it wanted on 
you know, anything. Uh, and that was just, I mean, it was, it was outrageous. It couldn't go on forever, but it was, it was really good fun, you know, to have, and not, I don't mean for personal reasons. I, I, I mean, just being able to, you know, hire a clue, hire a plane, whatever it, whatever it was. I mean, one, wonderful, very, one instruction when I was a bit later on, when I was based in the States and I was sent to, there was a coup in Haiti and I was in New York and it was January and it was snowing in New York. So I had my clothes were sort of, you know, thick overcoats and stuff. Flew down to Miami, where it was boiling hot, bought, uh, you know, a set of tropical hogs entirely on the company at their instruction. Uh, and, of course, the airport, unsurprisingly, had been shut down in Haiti. So the foreign editor said to me, he said, well, hire a Learjet and put it on your Amex card so the accounts department don't notice. <laughs> there I was, I know, 27 years old. Um, hiring a... An, executive dread jet I, I mean it was wonderful you know skimming over the caribbean on your way to a coup it's just great <laughs> you've just touched on your, your time in the states and and you were a washington correspondent at the at the height of um reaganism um during another american lurch to the right albeit in a marginally less um ugly manner than we see today do, do you think the major drivers in American politics have changed hugely in the 30 years since you covered that beat, or is there always a sort of a certain amount of continuity in what fuels the power struggles there? Well, I suppose we, we saw some of the things that um, you can now see very much in the Trump era. I mean, for example, uh, the rise of the religious right was just beginning to make itself felt then. Uh, and I remember being sent, for example, to do a story on a group of parents in um, in Tennessee who were suing the local school board because their children were being taught to read using Goldilocks books. And they felt that Goldilocks, because she lies and steals, was a thoroughly immoral character and that children should not be having their reading lessons with this um, appalling tale. So that sort of thing, which... We haven't, we, I don't think we've really been fully aware of before. That sort of thing was coming up a bit and was associated with the, the Reagan era. The big difference, I think, is that Reagan, for all his kind of looniness and slightly um, sort of dottiness and, and, and lack of attention sometimes, which, which we now realise may have been down to the fact that he, he may have had earlier onset Alzheimer's at that stage. But despite all of that, he was a cheerful figure. He was an optimist. You know, mourning again, mourning again in America was the great slogan during his second campaign, which, you know, if you contrast it to the Trump Make America Great Again, it's just, it, it's got a more optimistic, a more inclusive feel to it. Um, and there wasn't that that nastiness um, or that bipartisan bitterness across the island congress either um you know that the senate was a very clubbable place and people did you know as they say walk across the island talk to the other side and they did compromise on on some things so i think it was a it was a slightly different well the other point i think crucial contrast that we make is that there was a very strong sense um among reagan's team of the united states global role Remember, this is the era of Gorbachev and the beginnings of detente and the great summits and, and you know, arms control. Um, a very, very strong sense that, that, that America had this, this global role, even in some of the wackier things like the Iran-Contra affair, 
when, as you remember, they were selling, I mean, I was there at the White House today, they announced it, and none of us could quite believe it, the idea that, you know, they took, they took these two extremely controversial areas of the world, Iran, which after the, you know, the Ayatollah's revolution and the American hostage crisis was an enemy, and they were selling them weapons and giving them money to rebels in Latin America, but even that was kind of driven by this idea that the United States had a, had a global mission of some kind, and that's clearly something that Trump mustn't have, in fact, you know, actively uh, objects to and thinks of in a very different way. So, so I think, I, and I think those, those two things were, were, they were huge differences. It made, it was a much more cheerful thing to cover in those days, American politics. And you also had a very strong sense, I think because of that sense of global mission, of um, sort of Washington being Rome to Britain's Athens, if you, if, if you like. You, ca you came from this, what was then a rather sort of dank feeling little group of islands off the coast of Europe with, you know, been, just been through the miners' strike, um, bitter, bitter class warfare, really, huge unemployment, um, you know, very sort of difficult times. And suddenly you're in this sort of imperial capital um, with its magnificent public buildings. London was obviously scruffy in those days too. You know, you, you walked around the city, there was garbage around the place. Even some sort of holes in the terraces where bombs had fallen during the Second World War. It wasn't anything like the rather vibrant city. Well, I was going to say it is now, but it was before the COVID. Um, it, 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 was, it was a sort of, sort of dank provincial place. And, and Washington did feel like the centre of the world. The, um, the late 80s and early 90s saw you then on, on the Paris and then the general uh, diplomatic beat between BBC and ITN. Um, you've talked about uh, uh, the, the sense of Britain at that stage. Um, what, what do you think was the most important thing you feel you learned, particularly about sort of intra-European diplomatic relations? During that period, and do you think that the UK has ever really uh, willingly understood or sought to understand the European project? Well, um, I suppose the, the real lesson in all that was the Maastricht Treaty, which I negotiations leading up to that I, I covered, and indeed the the the, um, the summit itself. It always seemed to me that there was um, a, a gap in the, between the, the, the rhetoric and the coverage that you saw in the press and the reality that was going on. And actually, British ministers and British civil servants during that period were very deeply involved in the European object, to use the phrase we now use, um, and, and very clever at working the system and playing the internal diplomacy of the European Union. Lots of other countries that sympathise with many of Britain's views. Um, and we should, of course, remember that we, we were talking about a period just after Mrs Thatcher had created the single market. And one of the peculiar things about today is the Tory party, which holds her as a saint, is trying to take us out of what many in Europe regard as her greatest creation. Um, so things like state aid, which we hear so much about, she, she was the one who ensured that the rules are, well, not detail, but sure the philosophy behind the rules um, uh, was as, as, it, as, it, as, it, as it remains. Um, 
there was also quite a strong feeling within Europe that they would do quite a lot to accommodate British concerns because they did want us um, to stay in the club. Uh, and I suppose the single currency is where you saw all that particularly at work. Uh, an idea that really came out of um, Jacques Delors, François Mitterrand, Helmut Kohl, three figures who absolutely believed in the idea of the political, if you like, project in the European Union. Um, but a project that Mrs. Thatcher and then John Major both felt Britain shouldn't join and, and felt that that was a real, a real red line. Um, and you will remember, of course, that at the Maastricht summit, um, we got the opt-out from the single currency, the rest of Europe went ahead and, um, and we stayed outside it. And that was a, uh, that was a, real, a, really, a really big achievement. I mean, that, that did cost the Europeans a lot to allow that to happen. And it, and it spawned a sort of climate in Europe, which many of them weren't happy with, uh, in which opting out of things that gave you a particular set of domestic difficulties became, you know, not quite the norm, but it became something that became an accepted part of the way the European Union evolved. And I think that reflected um, a kind of willingness among other European nations to be flexible, to keep the Brits in. Um, now, that is quite different from the picture that you would have got if you'd read The Sun, uh, well, the Telegraph, particularly, there was a chap called John Boris Johnson writing for it from Brussels around, around then, because the, the kind of natural narrative was Britain alone, Britain isolated, we stand up for, um, for our rights and oh, we bash the Europeans and, and we get what we want. And I, I, think, I think it's really the, the, the difference between the reality that's going on at meetings in Brussels and at European summits and the way that story was reported in the European, uh, or rather, beg your pardon, not the European, the, the British press then, that was huge. I mean, really huge. And I think, you know, the rest, the rest as it were, is history. But I think that has been a big factor in our current European debates. Speaking of which, you, you published last year your co-authored volume, Blind Man's Brexit, a, a fascinating look at the Brexit negotiations process, yes. especially from the point of view of the Europeans. Do you, do you have any sense, I mean, just even on a personal level, of what we might expect come next year? I don't. Um, and I think the very odd feeling of that um, we have at the moment is that we've actually gone back into, in a funny sort of way, we've gone back into the May, the May years. Um, the latest, the internal market bill that we were talking about, which controversially the government has said would um, reach international law has kind of reopened a whole debate about withdrawal agreement in the first place which some Eurosceptics always oppose but went along with and they now see that this as an opportunity to, to open that debate again so you slightly feel we've gone back to kind of fun, really fundamental questions not questions about the detail of the trade talks but actually about the kind of the nature of the relationship so it, it, it seems to me that there's a good deal of debate to come. You also have, and you mentioned that, that book, which I shouldn't claim too much credit for, because it was mostly based on, on a wonderful film that um, a friend in, in, in Brussels made with, with Michel Barnier, and that's what it provided the kind of thrust of, of that book. But what, what you realise when you look at his evidence is that, to a great extent, the two sides are talking past each other. 
and not to each other. Mm. Uh, and if you, if you, I mean, we, I spent some of my time in France where we've got a house and I read the European press quite a lot. And it, it I mean, it's, it's a different, it's a different universe, really. It feels like that. Um, and you feel also sometimes that the, the Tory party itself is talking very much within itself. Um, it, it makes compromises within itself, which don't always kind of gel on the other side of, of uh, the channel. An, an example, for example, is the amendment, which was proposed to the Internal Market Bill, which would mean that Parliament had to vote for the government to invoke the law, the clauses that that would, would breach international law. Now, within the Tory party, that was seen as a compromise. So many Tory MPs were willing to, have been willing, or we'll see how they vote this week, but have been indicated they're willing to, to vote for it. In Brussels, they don't think that makes any difference. They think that the basic way that the, the bill is drafted is illegal. So you've got kind of, two, I mean, it's complicated anyway, the European Union, 20, <laughs> 27, 26, 27 countries. But, but when you've got internal politics going on in different places, um, it's really difficult. And, and it's more difficult when, when, when you're leaving. You know, you, when we were in, there was that willingness to make allowances, and that's sort of gone now, and Europe is moving, with sadness moving on. Um, so I think we've got some really quite difficult times to go. Leaving aside the whole COVID issue, I mean, that, you know, so it's going to be tough, I think. Going back slightly in, in the chronology, you were at the heart of some of the, the flagship news presentation teams of the BBC for, for well over a decade, first uh, with the one o'clock news, then on today. What were the events during that period that most made you think, I, I'm glad I'm in this job covering this? Well, it's funny. There are rather different things I discovered being a television newscaster and being... Um, a today presenter. Uh, television news is kind of what they call sometimes a cold medium. You're at one stage removed from um, the viewer and you are by and large stuck in the studio. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I did go out and do some presenting on the road. I mean, the, the Omer bombing, for example, was among the, the things I, I went to and, and American presidential elections and so forth, but but you're 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 mostly stuck in a box a long way from the events, mm. and you're reporting them at a distance. So it, it, that kind of cuts you off slightly. I found, whereas on the Today program you've got the intimacy of radio, which allows you to speak. It's much easier speaking to somebody on, on a radio line when they're, I don't know, in Afghanistan rather than it is on television. It just feels more natural. It also comes much more um, directly into people's homes, so they feel a kind of sense of connection in the programme that you, you don't quite have with telly. It's, it's, it's a warm medium. So I think in terms of a sense of big events, um, most of them were much more in my... Or, I, or the ones I experienced in a more vivid way were more during my... Today program days. Plus, of course, because the technology is much less kind of troublesome and there are fewer wires and you can broadcast from all sorts of places much more easily, you do actually get out and about. So, you know, I can remember, for example, when the Israelis withdrew from Gaza, sitting on a chair, 
with a little table on top of it, under my gear on it, broadcasting live into the 10 past eight slot on the Today programme. I can remember doing the same from um, the balcony of a hotel in Kabul just after the Taliban had been driven out of the city. Um, and those sorts of things, those sorts of things really make you live the moment, if, if you like, and, um, and experience it. And I suppose, I suppose since I mentioned that, 9-11 must be you know, up there as, as the defining um, moment of that decade, probably in international terms, uh, which, which I was involved with from right at the beginning. I, I got sent to Stansted. You may remember they closed the airspace over the United States when that happened. So a bunch of news organisations chartered a jumbo. We all literally sat on the tarmac at Stansted for about three days. And eventually the Canadians opened their airspace and we flew to Montreal and, and drove down, um, getting stopped by the cops for speeding, I remember, on, on the way. Um, but they were quite sympathetic when we told them we were going to New York because of 9-11. Um, and by the Saturday after, after the event, we were able to broadcast live from New York. It's a hell of a thrill, really. And the next day from Washington, and, and everybody was talking, you know, Colin Powell came out, um, Hillary Clinton came and talked to us. Uh, so that was that was nice. I, and, and that, of course, the, the rest of the news that decade, all well, a huge amount of it flowed from 9/11 and the climate, the climate that created. So I suppose I'd have to, you know, sort of pick the pick the pick the best. I'd have to choose that. You had you had 1989 being the 11/9, if you like, the the ninth um, of November when the Berlin Wall came down, and that defines one decade. And then uh, 2001, you have 9/11. Define the rest of that decade. The the time that you had at the at the helm of the state program um, ended rather unfortunately in terms of how it was handled um, and precipitated. Defenestrated. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, and of course, precipitating a major outcry by listeners. It has to be said, not least among the customers of HR Stokes and Company, where your daughter Eleanor, our executive director, was working at the time. Um, broadcast journalism is a continually sort of shape shifting beast, but with, with over a decade of, of clear water between then and now, was that a difficult storm to weather at the time? Well, of course it was. <laughs> it's no fun losing your job especially in such a public way. Um, on the other hand, uh, it was incredibly touching how people responded. Um, you know, it's really nice. And, and it made me realise that, that the listeners, I had been doing something right, you know, that you don't always know when you're, you're broadcasting, particularly not if the bosses fire you. But, but I, I realised from the reaction that I got to that, that, that I had been doing something right. Um, and you know, one of the things I've learned after a long time on Radio 4 um, is that the listeners think it belongs to them. And that's a huge kind of privilege, but also a, a sort of um, it's a great moral burden on your, on your shoulders. Um, when you go and do any questions before in pre-COVID days, which I you know, used to occasionally do to fill in for Jonathan Dibbleby, um, You'd always have drinks afterwards, and you'd be in some little village hall in the middle of nowhere, and all the folk would come in and, and chat to you. And you'd, real, you'd realise how completely they felt ownership of, of the, the network. 
and they'd be quite frank. You know, they said, I, I really like that, um, that program we did that other day. Well, why the hell did you ask him those questions? Why didn't you ask him these questions? It's just tremendous sense of ownership. Um, and that, that, is, that is, you know, that's sort of really um, inspiring in a way. And it's one of the reasons, in the end, I think, in the end, I love radio more than I love telly. Telly days, people will come up to you in the street and say, I hate that, hated that tie you were wearing the other day. They wouldn't say, I hated that question you asked. Do you see what I mean? And it's, it's, it, it's, it's that thing of it being a, a, a hot medium, if you like, mm. um, which, which, so the answer to your question is, yes, it was difficult, but, it, but, but the reaction kind of brought that home to me. And, you know, I've still broadcast on, on the network. Um, and that sort of sustains me, I suppose. Whether in terms of your work on, on television or your books or, or your radio work, a huge part um, uh, of or a huge part of your current work is the Sunday programme. And throughout your career, you have examined, written about, presented on, otherwise discussed a lot of areas relating to faith. Um, from a very Catholic family, your first marriage was solemnised at the heart of the small C conservative London London Catholic community at Brompton Oratory. Um, I, I, I think what I want to ask is, is faith important to you as a person as well as a journalist seeking a topic? Or would you say that you retain a faith? Or is, is your exploration of it now purely a quest for temporal knowledge rather than enlightenment, spiritual enlightenment? I tend to keep the same, the two things slightly separate. Um, I think my own faith and my feelings about it, I give church, but I'm not quite as observant as I probably should be. Um, but I would still call myself, I would still call myself a believing Catholic. Uh, and I think about what that means quite a lot. But I, I don't really mix that with my sort of public engagement with the subject. Um, I do think as, and this is not a comment about, this is not a religious comment, it's a journalistic comment. I do think the importance of religion is dangerously underappreciated in journalism generally in what is a very secular country. Um, and I say that because I, th I think you can't understand, particularly foreign affairs, without understanding that for most people on this planet, unlike uh, your friends and neighbours in Britain, for most people on this planet, it remains an overwhelmingly powerful force in their lives. Uh, and failing to recognise that does mean you get judgments wrong. I, for example, when Hamas was elected, elected to run Gaza in 2005, I think it was, it caught the whole world outside by surprise. People here, particularly the Foreign Office, totally blindsided. Why? Because none of us had thought of the possibility that what is essentially a religious organization could win an election like that. You know, the PLO had always been a, essentially a secular, fairly secular organization. Yasser Arafat welcomed Palestinian Christian, Christians as well, as well as Muslims and so forth. And suddenly here was this hardline organization, widely regarded as a terrorist organization in the United States for the moment, um, winning an election. 
and and I think you know that 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 kind of mistake is is very serious. And and you 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 will go on making those sorts of mistakes unless you take account of the fact that you know we think of faith as this kind of weird weird thing. Um, actually, we're the weird ones. Most of the world thinks of it as part of their lives. You um, you are, and I have been for almost 20 years now, um, married to Fiona, another powerhouse in the world of journalism. Um, sharing one's life and home with someone so equally driven in the same profession could be seen as either a source of irritation or a source of stimulation or perhaps both at the same time and like like the pale oyster um what what has your experience been well i think actually um it's a huge help if you are with somebody who is used to the uh constraints and imperatives of what remains uh quite demanding business. I mean, neither of us work quite as hard as we used to, but we still do quite a lot. And journalism, I'm mean, going back to what that careers officer at Cambridge told me, it does still sometimes mean being run up in the middle of the night and asked to do something very quickly. Perhaps rather less so now in terms of going to dangerous places. But, you know, sometimes you have, I mean, <laughs> I'll give you an example. Um, when I was on the Today programme, uh, my colleague, I, well, no, start again. I had a day off on the Monday, and on the Sunday night, we had an old friend, John Snow, actually, to dinner, and I hadn't seen him for a long time, and I think the last sort of Calvados went down at about one o'clock in the morning, uh, and we duly went to bed, and the phone goes at half past four, and the Today programme says, Evan Davis has forgotten he's on shift today, and he's in France, can you come in? To which I replied, well, I wouldn't drive a car, but I'll Come, come and drive the nation's leading news program if you like. Now, that's an extreme example, but you've got to be prepared for that sort of thing. And uh, being with somebody who, who's you know, lived through it herself means we kind of understand each other and those sorts of demands. And the fact, for example, in her case, that if she's you know, got, to, got to view a film because the deadline's coming up, it, it doesn't matter that you're going to miss dinner you got to view the film you know you, so, so i think two people who understand those things mm. find it much easier to rub along of what are you most proud be that personally or professionally oh gosh what a question well personally oh my children of course they're wonderful uh professionally um Probably some of the books I think I've done because uh, they're bloody hard work. Um, I mean, they're, they're, you know, a, a book, a book. It was a real shock writing my first book because one of the things you have to do when you uh, learn to the sort of rudiments of broadcasting is to write with incredible brevity. And we were taught, for example, when I joined ITN the whole of News at 10 could fit into a single column of what was then the broadsheet times. So if you're writing a story, you have to get the words absolutely kind of really pared back. And the other thing, writing for television, is that you obviously don't put any description in because you can see it on the screen. So it would sound silly if, you know, the Prime Minister arrived in a blue car when you can see that the car's blue. So you, you, you kind of pare back all those 
descriptive sort of habits. And suddenly if you're writing a book, you've got to undo all that and relearn it. And you've got to be more expansive and you've got to allow for nuance and you've got to allow for description. So it took, it took a good while to learn how to do it. But in a way, it comes back to what I was saying earlier when we were talking about the Benedictines. Um, learning history uh, is just a very, it's not only satisfying itself, it's just a very useful way into deepening your journalism, I think. Um, one of the things I have learnt is don't believe people's memories, for example. Um, I did a book, for example, on, on, on the BBC during the Second World War, and I went back to the archives, um, which are wonderful in the written archives in Cavisham, but it's the record, written record of what happened at the time. And then you put that against the way some people remember things in their memoirs, and you realise that even things written quite soon after <coughs> the actual events, people distort things, people remember things in a way um, that suits them, that flatters them, um, that they like to remember them. And yeah, that's a, because you know, when, when you start in television journalism, if I stick a camera in your face and I, I say, remind me what happened and you tell me, well, that looks like the, you know, that's the record, but, but actually it isn't the record probably, and you may well have mis misremembered things. So, so I, 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 I think, you know, different things at different stages of my career, but I think at this stage, the books are things, the things that I find most, um, most satisfying. And what do you still want to achieve? What do I still want to achieve? Um, gosh, <laughs> I don't know really, Paddy. I mean, um, I enjoy Guam. I go, <laughs> no, I, 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 I still, it still gets me up in the morning if I'm going on a live show on the radio. I, I, I don't know that counts as an achievement, but it's, it's pathetic really. I should have got over it now. It's a teenage thrill. But I do find the adrenaline rush of live radio yeah. is still a great hit. You know that sense of that's that sense of danger. Um, Charles de Gaulle, after his wartime broadcast, when he wrote his memoirs, the broadcast which really created his his career, talked about the sensation of irrevocable words flying out of his mouth. And there is that. You know, you, you say something on the wireless, and you can't get it back, and that just sort of adds a a sharpness, it clarifies your mind in a funny sort of way. Of course you make mistakes. Uh, I mean, I had a terrible one recently on the Sunday programme when we were doing an anniversary programme for the Grenfell Fire. And I noticed in the briefing notes that the, the Methodist um, minister who I was about to interview uh, had just taken over his parish when the fire happened. He was rather a hero and he looked up lots of families and things um, and, and, and comforted them after the, after the fire. And I said, gosh, this must have been a bit of a baptism of, oh, I just stopped myself in time before I said magic word. Unfortunately, private eye did notice this. <laughs> but, so, you know, that sort of, that sort of grenade is waiting for you all the time. Um, but that's fun. You know, it's not like being a doctor. You make a mistake when you're committing, when you're performing harm to the heart surgery, you're going to kill someone. But if I make a mistake on that, by and large, I might as well destroy my career if it was a very bad one, but by and large, I'm not. But there is that just that edge to 
for your mental process that, that comes with doing stuff live. You can, you can always tell, you know, I think if you, when you listen, some interviews are best done pre-recorded. I mean, if, if it's a very emotional thing, if the person you're talking to is, is not a practice performer, but, but a, a quote, ordinary person, that is, but you know what I mean, um, who's a bit nervous, then it can be better to pre-record. But I think for sort of most kind of politicians, senior church people, anything of that kind, there's nothing to beat the life. Not at all. Um, and uh, yes, I'm sure there's um, uh, many a broadcaster will be nodding in agreement with what you've said, not least those that have had to introduce Jeremy Hunt at one point or another. Um, <laughs> yes, indeed. Well. Uh, we, we conclude each interview in the same fashion with every, every um, subject. Um, which is to uh, mark the passing of, of James Lipton, who found it inside the actor's studio, who used to, um, regardless of who he was interviewing, would ask the same 10 questions at the end of each interview. Um, and um, it's been interesting how it's panned out with a lot of the people we've been interviewing in this. Um, some love it, some hate it, but um, we, we do it anyway. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll start off by asking, what's your favourite word? Archive. And your least favourite word? Well, you probably know this, Paddy, because you know my daughter, but it's moist, which I find <laughs> oddly repellent. <laughs> what excites you? Uh, live broadcasting, as I've just described, that thrill. And what completely turns you off? Um, gosh, bureaucracy, long meetings. I'll go for long meetings. What sound or noise do you love? A cork being pulled out of a bottle. And what sound or noise do you hate? Jackhammers. Do you have a favourite swear word? Uh, the French do it well. I think merde. I mean, it's optically rude, but it's got a certain expressiveness that um, <laughs> does the trick. Um, you win the award so far for the most original answer to that. Um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? There was a story in The Guardian this morning that the Maldives as an opening for a barefoot bookseller. Um, and I was quite tempted to put in for that. What profession would you absolutely never wish to attend? Well, anything that required um, dexterity. I mean, a carpenter or, or plumber or engineer. I mean, I just... You know, I'm extremely clumsy. I can't put things together. Um, so, yes, anything of that kind would be a complete catastrophe. When your time comes, you fetch up at the pearly gates, what would you like to hear said to you on arrival? Interestingly, that, that question I have heard asked and brilliantly answered, asked to and brilliantly answered by François Mitterrand when he was um, 
when he was dying in the last stages of, of cancer. And he gave the most amazing, actually extraordinary, such a clever man, dangerous and, and, and sort of evil, but clever. Um, extraordinary interview on French television, I think literally just about a week before he died, and the interviewer asked him that question. Mitro, of course, had been a Catholic, I think an agnostic for some period of his life, and I think by that time he was he was definitely an atheist. He said, I hope that God would say, maintenant tu sais, et en plus, bienvenue, now you know, and on top of that, welcome, which was a hell of a good answer, really. <laughs> Edward Sturton, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. You've been listening to Dark Unicorn in Conversation with Edward Sturton. The show was written, presented and edited by Paddy Cooper. Theme music by Curtis Batson. Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton. The show was executive produced on behalf of Dark Unicorn Productions Limited by Eleanor Sturton. presents one of the greatest threats to theatre in living memory. The performing arts need you now more than ever. Please, consider supporting our work by becoming a patron, with packages starting at just £50 per year to be a rainbow unicorn. Just visit darkunicorn.org. Science helps us solve problems, but creativity helps us cope with them. Please don't let the performing arts be another casualty of the pandemic. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.